Welcome to DLN Extend. We choose topics covered by the Destination Linux network that we think need further discussion and extend the conversation here. These shows include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, DOSGeek, Tux Digital, and Zebedee Boss Gaming. I'm Nate, a Linux, fitness, and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. And I'm Eric. We wanted to start out this week by taking a moment to thank everyone for the warm reception we received. And I have to say that the number of downloads is incredible and continues to grow. We've also received some very nice compliments and positive feedback from people, and we truly do appreciate it. We weren't sure what to expect, and so far it's been nothing but positive, so thank you. I do have one favor to ask, though. If you're enjoying the show, please consider liking it on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you're finding podcasts so that those ratings get out there. It really does help bubble up the show, gets us climbing up a little bit so people can find us. It would also be a big help if you were to share it with others that you think might enjoy it. It takes a little while for the word to get out for new shows, so anything you could do to help would be just a tremendous benefit to us. Certainly, if you're enjoying this and would like to see us continue and and be successful, that would be a a big favor for us. And I know we're just starting out, and I hate to start asking favors already, but... Well, you know, it's a digital favor, so it's not a huge deal. You know, digital favors are easy to come by, I think. (laughs) <laughs> so so clicking a button and sharing that's that's yeah clicking low. a button sharing it or you know mentioning it maybe you know spamming your, your contacts in your in your mailbox or whatever definitely yeah and that could be a way yeah, to go something yeah. like that. so one last thing the podcast should now be available on everyone's platform of choice the full list is available at dlnextend.com and that's d-l-n-x-t-e-n-d.com if there's an option you think is missing please let us know if you prefer youtube we also have it there as well We have full episodes and some bonus clips of things we didn't put into the regular main podcast. So, Eric, what have you been up to? Even though I mentioned the car you don't trust metaphor that I have still been running Ubuntu and still been running GNOME, and I just can't shake it. All those issues I had, I think may have been related to upgrading and possibly some extensions I was running because what I ended up doing was to just wipe my system and install a fresh copy of Ubuntu 19.10. And then I did add a few extensions, but not as many as I had before. So Nate, how about you? What have you been up to this week? Well, I was going to tell you about my Linux adventure or my cat adventure that I, that you sent me down, uh, which have all been really exciting. But today, I, I have to get this off my chest because it just I went to a, uh, the Grand Rapids Public Museum with my kids, and it was a great experience for the kids. I really enjoyed a lot of the historical things that they, they had there. And they had a, a rather large exhibit on toys, historical toys. And very amusingly, I had a, the, the first toy was a stick. Uh, and I thought that was very funny that they actually had that mounted on the wall and like in a box and everything. And kind of they progressed down like Egyptian toys and, and then into the early 20th century and, and, and beyond. And they kind of like the popular toys of the years that had that really neat. Then they had these like different bedrooms or like different sets, like uh, like home areas of homes of different popular toys. And I, I was just really exciting because like I recognized some things from like that were not mine, but that I saw from older cousins when I was a kid. Then they had like a like 70s to 80s, which I had a lot of my, my older brother's hand-me-downs. And I saw some toys that I forgot about that I had in there. And then they had um, 80s into the 90s. 
And I was really excited because I'm like, oh yeah, they have a Super Nintendo, they got a, an Apple IIc and a bunch of Transformers and Legos. And it, just, it was really neat to see. And then I was immediately stricken with sadness because I'm like, wow, my favorite toys are in a museum. That means I'm old. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah, but it was, it was really neat to see. I, I took tons of pictures. The kids loved it. And they had like a giant battleship mock-up. Like you can actually, and have like, you push a button, you can talk to the person on the other side. So my boy and I, we played that a little bit uh, until some other kids kind of ruined the whole thing. But anyway, it was, it was really fun to play. I mean, there's like all these really neat old toys, some failed toys that are uh, probably not appropriate for this podcast. But one that was funny is... Uh, in 1977, I think it was, some milk company decided to make a cow to, to promote cereal, General Mills cereal, a cow you can milk for fun. And then they realized that milking cows wasn't fun for kids. And anyway, just wow. little things like that, just lots of fun. And then they had like an arcade section and some other video game exhibits. So, you know, the, all the vintage video games and, and uh, consoles were there. And it was really neat to see um, like an old Odyssey, the, you know, the Atari original the VCS or 2600. And they, and they had in a glass case, which kind of bothered me, they had an original PlayStation in a glass case saying this is, you know, a museum piece, an original Xbox in a museum piece. <laughs> and the one that really kind of bothered me was they had a Nintendo Wii also as a museum oh, piece. Oh, jeez. I'm like, that's not fair. Come on now. That was just 2006 that that came out or something like that. 2008, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that, I think that's pushing it a little bit there. That's, that was pushing it. That was pushing it for sure. But it was fun nonetheless. And I, I really enjoyed it. Kids really enjoyed it. We left like two hours past the time we intended on leaving. So, I mean, it was, it was a good time. Well, that says it all. Yeah. What an interesting idea for a display to have that sort of chronology of this is how children's toys evolved through time. And at first it kind of made me think, you know, that doesn't seem like, you know, like appropriate for museum piece. But then I thought to myself, well, why doesn't it? We look at cultures, ancient cultures, right? This is part yeah. of our current culture, not necessarily pop culture, but it is part of the culture. You know, these toys in some ways did actually make us. For me, Transformers was kind of big as a kid and Legos. You know, having that all that there kind of says, yeah, these are important things in, in a lot of our history. We are bridging an interesting period of time with the, the span of our lives. When we were children, the world was pretty much just becoming the digital age. So a lot of analog still existed. There was the last sort of vestiges of that world. I agree. I would think the same thing. Like, here's all of the things from my youth now being considered museum pieces. But so much change has happened in this short span of time of our lives. It's almost like there's an acceleration of history in a way where certain things lasted for decades, centuries, millennia, in some cases where that was the way of the world. And technology has transformed the world in such a short amount of time that this period of time since then, this 40 or 50 years, I'm not sure the best way to express it, but it's, it's almost like it's compressed in a way. There's just so much that has happened in such a short span of time that oh, it's sure. you look back on it now and you say, well, something that happened 20, 30 years ago seems like such a long time ago, especially related to technology, the internet, communications, society, the way that we you know interact with each other. So much has changed in such a short span of time comparatively to the previous 30, 40, 50 years, and then even further back. So the idea that somebody thought, hey, to think of an original PlayStation or the Atari or the Commodores or, you know, all of this technology that is now seems so outmoded, but at the time was just absolutely revolutionary. And it wasn't that long ago. 
Now that you mention it, there was not a single Commodore there. There was nothing Commodore there. You know what? I think I'm going to have to do something about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> you have a personal collection that maybe you could lend. <laughs> no, that's that's my collection. That, speaking of the technology, though, and how things advanced, there was an, an area demonstration. It was like a, oh, it was, uh, supposed to be 19, uh, I'm sorry, 1800s downtown Grand Rapids. And so they had these different storefronts and whatnot you could go into. And one of them was a printing press that they actually had a printing press from 1880, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was 1880, that they were actually running and showing how it was done. And one, if your finger's just a little bit slow, that you're you're going to have uh, fewer fingers or at least shorter fingers. But this machine, the lady was telling me that the man who bought this machine ran it his entire life, the same piece of technology, and ran print after print after print. And it still runs today. And she says, you know, I bet your print at home is not going to last for a hundred years. Kind of made me think, you know. It was really neat to see, you know, how they set the typefaces and, and the pictures and images and whatnot. And the fact that this technology is still usable today, even though it's 139 years old. Sometimes, sometimes the old technology is still very good technology. And at least that's that's what I took took from it. Absolutely. I actually took a course in high school around graphic arts and art production, photography, and everything we did was pre-digital. We didn't have any computers in the classroom. So it was photography with real film and dark rooms. And we had a little hand pull print press where you put the typeface in and inked it, you know, rolled it with the ink, put the page in, pressed the platter and it pressed against it and learning all of those things. And you're absolutely right. Some of that is it's timeless in the sense that it will all always work. Like you said, that guy was able to get his work done and do the things he needed to do with his trusted piece of equipment that lasted his lifetime and beyond. And I have an inkjet printer that I'm lucky if I get two or three years out of it before I want to throw it out of the window. <laughs> yep, that's exactly it. And it's it's actually amazing, you know, not 139 years now that it's been in, been working. They are still making bookmarks and all these things with it, yeah, for demonstration purposes, not to necessarily make money. But the, the supplies needed to continue to operate that piece of technology still exists. Like it has not gone away in over 100 years. And that's actually probably better too. It's still very amazing that this old technology can still function and service a modern age. And I think that's pretty cool. So Destination Linux had a couple of guests. Zeb and Noah were not available. So they had Bo Weaver and can't remember his name, but he goes by Dolphin. I like the guy from MX Linux. And Bo Weaver brought up the uh, VPN discussion that I thought was was very in depth. It had a lot of a lot of meat to it. I actually had to watch it a couple times just because I I couldn't absorb it all. And I would say that I still haven't absorbed it all. But I thought it very interesting, like when and how he uses VPNs because I didn't even think about this. I I've never actually even used a VPN outside of trying to spoof my location. Shh, don't tell anybody. But like how how uh, how VPNs can protect you in in cases of various kinds of attacks. And now, do you use a VPN? I do. And it was very interesting to hear Bo from a security professional's perspective. I have seen a lot of misinformation. Some of it is purposely, I think, put out there by the VPN vendors that are selling the products. And some of it is just general misinformation. I mean, I'll just tell you from my own experience in IT, networking can be one of the most misunderstood and difficult subjects to really understand. Luckily, because I've had that background and that experience, I've always understood the purpose of a VPN and what it does and essentially creating a 
point between your system and a server somewhere. And so when Bo was talking about the idea of the value of a VPN and really what it's protecting you from or the benefit of using it, so going back to some of that misinformation that I see, it doesn't really provide you with bulletproof anonymity or security or anything like that, but it does remove the ability for people to see what you're doing, essentially. And so that's why people will use a VPN, like you mentioned, using it to change the perception of the location of where your system is, right? And the way that's working is you make that connection to that server, and then all of the traffic that you are initiating from your side appears to be coming from that server. So wherever that server is located, now magically, that's where you are. So that's one use of a VPN. The security side of it, and the side that I use it for, is when you're on an an unsecured network. And that's going to be any kind of public Wi-Fi, like uh, Starbucks, For me, it's a lot around like hotels and just basically any kind of public Wi-Fi where you don't have to authenticate to that network. You can just get on there and use it. Even if you have to go to a web page and say you agree to the terms to use the network, you didn't have to put in a password. So it's not secured. And when you're on those networks, all of your traffic is visible. And that means that any kind of traffic from your web browser or your email client or anything that's using an internet connection on your system is now going through their network. And by virtue of that, they can at least see where you're going and what you're doing in the sense of are you downloading files? Are you streaming media? So HTTPS traffic is encrypted, you know, on the client end, which is your side and the server end, which would be if it's the website or the email server or whatever, but they can still see the address. So there's, there's a lot of information that can be captured from you. And so a VPN does obfuscate that in the sense that they can't see any of that traffic at all, because that pipeline, that tunnel is, is a layer that sort of strips that out so that they can't see it. That's not the best way to describe it. From a privacy perspective, it's removing a layer of information that they can pull from you. It's not removing everything, but it's at least removing a layer. And from a security perspective, it's preventing anybody in an untrusted network to gather information that could potentially harm you. So it's it's smart. It really is a smart system to utilize. It is. I should probably be smarter. <laughs> the important thing that I want people to understand and take away from this is that it is not a magic cloaking device, you know, like a Romulan <laughs> cloaking device or something where suddenly you're be a lot cool if it was. Well, it would be. Yeah. And so that's really the takeaway from this is it is an important tool. It does have value. It is often oversold and overstated. It makes me think like Bo is obviously a professional paranoid feller, right? He's got layers of protection. And, and then I often think like how much protection is necessary? So from a perspective of your home, doors only keep out honest people, really. Doors and windows, they only keep out you know a, a relative honest person. Because if someone wants to get into my house, they're going to be able to get into my house. Now, if I'm in the house, they can be met with some resistance, and I will know that they're coming through the house because they have to... They'll be, they'll be announcing it through the noise of going through a window or door. But then I, I think like if I add deadbolts, that doesn't change anything. How much security is just unnecessary? From the computery things, from the information systems level, I don't know that I know exactly how much security is necessary. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, obviously, if I'm in a public Wi-Fi that I don't trust, I should be using a VPN. That's just that is the smart thing to do. If I'm not accessing accessing my my bank, is it as necessary? I don't know. Maybe it is because they can potentially get, you know, do man in the middle type attacks. You know, if I'm accessing, let's say, the Destination Linux network and somebody really wants my admin access to the discourse, I suppose, you know, there, there's a problem there, right? But how serious is that problem? I say, hey, Eric, uh, there's something wrong with my account and you could potentially fix it. So I, I, I don't know. I just don't know how much 
security is necessary, I guess is really what I'm, you know, what I'm getting at is with that. What is an unnecessary level? I mean, like trying to keep Michael out of the mumble server. That's one thing that I don't know how to do. <laughs> you change the password. <laughs> now, the necessary versus unnecessary really comes down to your comfort level, right? And I think that's, it's the type of thing, like the more you know, the more you probably want to take greater precautions. If you have a legitimate concern of the potential for data leaks and eavesdropping and man-in-the-middle attacks and all of the potential pitfalls of using a network, particularly a public network, then yeah, you should take the steps that you feel are appropriate to safeguard your privacy and your security. And can't see me, but I'm shaking my head and I'm kind of giving that like pursed frown look on my face <laughs> because I think I need to adjust what it is that I'm doing on that for sure. On Destination Linux, there was some listener feedback about backup options. Ryan suggested Deja Dupe. Michael, as well, mentioned Deja Dupe. Dolphin used Lucky Backup, and Bo used a custom arsing script that he's been using for the last 15 years. And that didn't surprise me at all that he had some sort of a custom arsing script. No, not in the slightest. I use Back in Time, which is basically a front end for rsync, and it does incremental backups, so it only saves the changes every time you back it up. So I don't know what the schedule should be for backing up. Some people say, oh, you should do it daily. I do it weekly because everything that's on my system is also, I use SyncThing and it synchronizes to a couple other machines. So I figure if one machine blows up, then I can just recover my data. So I do the, but I, I figure also I should have a backup so in case somehow something is compromised, however that would happen, I don't know. But uh, then I would have those offline backups as well that would not be compromised. So what do you use? Well, I tend to try lots of different options. I've used back in time and I think it works really well. And I would say it's sustainable too. The huge thing is it's a sustainable backup process. That's the key right there. Right. Backups are only good if you're consistent about them. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Deja Dupe is pretty good and that's what's built into Ubuntu. Same deal, very similar approach. You know, you're choosing what to back up, where to back it up and how often to do it. And it will just kind of run and make that happen. I've never heard of Lucky Backup. I went and looked at it after hearing it on the show. And again, it's another tool that kind of does the same thing. GRSync is a graphical GTK front end for RSync. So one of the things that everyone says about RSync is that it's this big, long, scary looking command. And it is complicated. And like Bo said, you sort of figure out how you want it to work, either through trial and error or research. And then you kind of settle on that. And then like he has done, you just tend to use that approach and you can reuse it indefinitely for all different purposes. But GRSync does a really good job of exposing all of those options in a graphical user interface face that allows you to look at it from that perspective and then choose different options. And then essentially all it's doing is creating that same command line in the background, but it's an easier, more user-friendly way to use rsync. So I've had good success with that as well. I've used SyncThing like you have mentioned. We've been using it for this podcast. There are lots of different options. The most important thing is that people should just be aware that backup is a good idea and that there are lots of really, really solid options, very good tools available between Back in Time and Deja Dupe and all of the things we've mentioned. Just pick something and use it because backups are one of those things that you don't think about till the minute you need it. And then as soon as you need it, if you don't have a backup, <laughs> it becomes a very stressful situation 
and someone like me who's pretty paranoid when it comes to backup. I've lost data over the years enough times that it's worth the effort to set up the backup, which isn't a tremendous effort, but it's worth the time to do that so that when that time comes, and it will come, that you are prepared and able to recover from that situation. This week on Ask Noah, one of the topics he talked about was the idea of too much choice in the Linux community and the difficulty that this brings specifically around approaching software vendors and packaging their software and making it available for Linux. And I know, Nate, that you have some strong opinions on this topic. So what did you think of that? So I understand from that perspective, it makes it difficult for a third party, maybe a proprietary vendor for building software for Linux, it just becomes problematic. And I think that things like universal packaging, like AppImage, Flatpak, and Snaps, that I think that gives it a vendor, a method to target a wide array of Linux distributions. I kind of look at choice in in Linux, in the open source community, as how new ideas spur and grow and so forth. I think uh, a good example where Caden Live and OpenShot, they're basically going after the same thing, but OpenShot just does what OpenShot wants to do. The developer there, he uh, he did some integration with, I think it was Blender uh, not too long ago, that wasn't on anybody else's radar to do, but it was neat to see that he just kind of did what he felt to do. He's not chasing specific features from other projects. So I actually like all of this different choice give me these options because sometimes, you know, something just may not work for me in a piece of software or in a distribution. Well, not really distribution because I use OpenSUSE and that always works for me, but in, or MX, because that works for everything else. And that allows me to uh, move around when I have to and solve all those problems that I need to solve. What is your view on the, the myriad amounts of choice in Linux? I think choice is always a good option. It's it's better to have choice than to not have choice because that's what leads us to vendor lock-in and all of the proprietary software pitfalls and traps that we've seen. And really what leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths and, and maybe is the impetus for many people to seek out open source alternatives and to use something like Linux over a proprietary operating system. It's because we have choice. We have the choice of which distribution we want to run, which desktop environments we want to run, and then which software we want to use as well. Yes, sometimes that choice does dilute the pool of available resources, maybe pulls people off into a tangent. Maybe there is what you could legitimately claim to be wasted time and effort solving the same problems that have already been solved by other people. But what also comes out of that is innovation a new set of eyes looking at a problem and coming up with a different solution, a different approach. And so the idea that that choice exists spurs innovation in a way that is impossible in proprietary closed sourced software. So the beauty of open source to me is that I can choose to take a project and if I know how to, to develop that software where I'm willing to learn and there's something about it that I don't like or that I'd like to see included, I can do that. So those choices, having those choices allow us in this community and in this world of open source to make real change. So there can never be too much choice, in my view, because as long as people have an interest and a desire to improve and change, to create new things, to invite collaboration, the ability to have that choice is what allows all of that to happen. 
In terms of the complexity and the potential confusion from an outsider's perspective or from a new person's perspective, I do appreciate the sentiment of too much choice can be confusing, can be overwhelming, and in some cases potentially be you know a negative thing. I mean, from a personal standpoint, I'm one of those people that if I go to a restaurant and there's 10 pages on the menu, that's too much. There are too many choices now. I don't want... Yeah. 50 different things to choose from. When there is too much choice, and this has happened to me, like in a restaurant, I always tell the the waitress or waiter to just choose something good for me being a first timer in this restaurant. What would be a good experience for me? And I often think that that's perhaps kind of what I do with Linux myself. I, I will tell people what I think is a good experience in Linux, which isn't always what I use, you know, necessarily. Like the way I use a computer is not necessarily the way everybody else should use a computer or other people want to. But the, the confusion of all the choice is a stumbling block, but I, I think that's easily mitigated. Well, a distribution is the expression of making choices. It is somebody who has a vision or an ideal and has chosen a base for the distribution itself, has chosen a preferred desktop environment in many cases, and then chooses a default set of applications that are going to be included when you install that distribution. So that expression of choice and of making those choices culminates with the distribution and packaging it. Really, that's where the opportunity lies for us to deliver it to the end user in a way that does take away that confusion around so many choices and things like that. I mean, we've talked about all of the different options for backups and VPNs and all of you know the firewall. Tool. There's so many choices for what you can do on a system. And that's good. That's powerful. That's important that people, once they realize that they can make those choices, have the availability of those choices. But the initial experience that they should have through the distribution that they're using is that somebody has taken the time to make some good choices for them so that they can start from a solid position to then customize it and make it their own. I'd ask Noah, he brought up being realistic about proprietary software. Do you have opinions about proprietary software on Linux? I think that software is software and it is there to accomplish a task. If there is an open source alternative that will do everything you need it to do, then in my case, I will definitely use the open source option. However, that isn't the case for everything. And in particular, any kind of industry where there's a specialized set of tools, those types of things can be difficult. And so the reality is that there are companies out there that serve those markets and they do a very good job of producing products that work in those industries and do exactly what those professionals need to be done. A lot of people need specialized tools. And if that's a proprietary piece of software, then that's what you use because you have to get it done. And, and there's a statement that I, I've heard uh, many times about proprietary software that's not open source abuses the user. I know if you've heard that statement before, but I totally disagree with that mindset. Uh, I think it's short-sighted to think so. Because uh, in the end, a computer is a tool. It's a wrench. It's a hammer. It's a it's a drill. Its job is to do something to get a task accomplished, whatever that task might be. And there are many times for professionals in, in certain fields, you have to have that right tool. And although an open source tool might be more ideal, it might not be able to fit the bill. I'd like to give you an example of my situation that I have in Linux since I've been using Linux for getting a job done. 
and I, I do mechanical design work. And the, at FreeCAD is, has been my go-to tool on Linux for doing CAD work. But there are certain cases where it just doesn't hold up. It, it just cannot do, you know, complex modeling very well. Maybe it can, but I was having a hard time getting it to do certain tasks. And then assembly was kind of ropey at best being worked on and and I and I hope it gets better. I do I'm actually a, a patron of one of the people who do work on FreeCAD. So it, it is important to me, but this week I found a wonderful tool, a professional grade tool that I can run in Linux called Fusion 360. Have you heard of that? I haven't heard of that, but I have heard of Autodesk who makes that product, I believe. That's right. And AutoCAD is something that I've used in the past which I never really cared for. It was kind of a meh product for for doing mechanical design. Inventor was okay, but it really wasn't that as good as what I had been using called Creo uh, from PTC, who used to build a Linux version, actually started on Unix and still has some of the Unix menu paradigms, but they only run on Windows now, which is dumb. But hey, you know, it's their company. So Fusion 360 is a CAD CAM modeler software. So you can use it not only to design your parts, but to actually run them like the CNC tool passes and all kinds of really awesome things. And although uh, if you try to download it for Linux, uh, it says it doesn't support this. Actually, it won't let you download it. It says it doesn't, it doesn't support that operating system. You can install it through Lutris. There's a little bit of playing you have to do with it because it doesn't automatically, I mean, the, the rules exist. We have to go into the, into the application afterward and, and change something to use DirectX 9 instead. But it runs so well. I, I was super excited on Thursday of how well this ran. I designed a replacement sewing machine wheel for a friend uh, just in about 45 minutes. Just using that as an example of like testing it out and, and yeah. seeing if you could do it. Right. Well, he asked me to do it quite a while ago and you know, I just didn't get around to it. And I happen to have that broken wheel like a, that I kind of pieced back together in my bag. And so everything from the 120 teeth around doing that pattern, how you select the pattern, how you produce the features off of other features, it all works so beautifully. I mean, it just, the picks and clicks are a little bit different from what I'm used to, but it's, it's a minor thing. The intelligence in it is amazing. Now, it does break one of my rules as it does require some kind of cloud access for uh, for how it stores some of the files. The processing is does is done locally, but it uses the cloud for some part of the storage. And you can it's free for personal use, but for commercial use it costs money, which I think is pretty fair. If you choose to make money off of it, then I think the company does deserve something back. And I think that's a really decent business model actually. And then actually even says if if you make I think it was like I I'm, I'm paraphrasing here and I might be getting it wrong, so you know, go ahead and read read the license yourself, but actually has the license agreement. If you make money like up to a thousand dollars or something like that with this software on YouTube, contact them so they can work with you. And I thought that was pretty cool. So if you do stuff, if you do as a creator, as an individual creator, if you start to do really neat things with it and get an audience, now they're going to use you as a uh, <laughs> as an advertising avenue, I'm assuming. And I thought that was for a company that's old, like Autodesk has been around for, you know, since, oh golly, I think since the 80s, probably. I don't know. I, I could be wrong on that. For them to look at modern ways of doing things like that, that's to me a, an astounding thing that this company is that flexible, is that cognizant of trends of technology that I think that they're, they're here for the long haul. You know, they've won me over unless they somehow, you know, the, the bucket drops out on, on this one. I can't run in Linux anymore, but it runs super well. I use the, uh, you know, because I, I have a hybrid uh, laptop. I was running on that and I did the DRI Prime to use the AMD GPU and literally it was smooth. Everything about it was just smooth. Aside from a, some slight glitching with some of the menus, when you go to minimize, they kind of hang out and 
there on all the virtual desktops. Aside from that one little thing, it is really a, aside from that one glitch, it was all glitch free. It, it worked. You could save things, you could export things as you needed to, to run a 3D printer or whatever. And it was basically the answer to my needs for using Linux. It's amazing to me because if I want to use all Linux all the time, I can now do that because of this one bit of proprietary software that is so well done, so well put together, and can do high-level mechanical design, assembly, everything. Not really even product lifecycle management to some degree. I could be completely off Windows entirely and never have to touch it again because this bit of proprietary software will run, albeit through Lutris, on my Linux box flawlessly. There's one thing you've mentioned that I want to touch on. I mean, first of all, that's amazing. I'm, I'm so glad that you found that. And it is, it's like a cathartic event whenever something like that happens because you struggle, you struggle, you struggle, or you just settle and say, okay, I can do some of the things that I need to do in this free open source software. But ultimately, I know if I need to do other things, then I just, I have no choice. I'm going to have to go back into Windows and I'm going to have to boot up that proprietary system and and do my work in there. So congratulations on finding that. It's always a just a wonderful experience to to feel that. Like I think I was on cloud nine for all of Thursday. Like like I think I was singing my whole way home from work <laughs> because I was so excited. It was that it felt so good to finally answer that problem. November seventh, two thousand nineteen. That is the year of the Linux desktop. That day is the year of Linux desktop. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And that's a personal desktop moment right there, yeah. The thing I wanted to touch on was something you said about you weren't sure that FreeCAD could do the things that you want to do simply because you've learned how to do them a certain way in different pieces of software. And ultimately, there may have been some way to work around the limitations or maybe do it in a way that was much more difficult. At least it isn't something that is evident or obvious based on the tools available. There, there was no way to constrain features from other features reliably that it was made it very difficult to do any kind of real serious design work. Although parametric still, FreeCAD is parametric, it was not able to do the same level, the same depth of parametric relationships that I can do on the commercial software. The point that I think I'm, I'm moving towards here is that you will have people say things like, well, no, you can do it. And then here's how you do it. And then when you see what is involved with that and you realize, oh, okay, well, uh, yeah, you're right. I could do it. But geez, it's going to take me like three, four, five times longer to do it that way than just using a tool that does that for me or does it in a much more straightforward way. Capability is one thing, but efficiency is another. And efficiency is a huge factor in any kind of professional environment. The fact that a tool can do something, like you could cut a lot of lumber with a handsaw. It's entirely possible, right? You can build a house with hand tools. You're not going to do that because it's going to take you a very long time and it's not the most efficient way to do it. And you're being paid to do this work, or let's say maybe you're, you're only being paid when you complete the work. And so it in your best interest to find the most efficient way to do that. And the reality is that a lot of proprietary software solves those kind of problems for professionals in specific industries. And for someone like you, who, like you said, it took you 45 minutes to do something that let's say there was a way to do it in FreeCAD. It may have taken you three, four, five hours to do the same thing. I will actually say it took me over a day of working on it and still not being able to complete it. It's not because I'm an idiot. I am a little bit, perhaps, but not because, not due to lack of trying, but because 
I could not make the parametric relationships that I needed to make in order for the part to be produced mathematically correct. And that really was the problem. And if it's not correct, if it needs adjustment, I have to be able to adjust those values and make it more correct. And if I cannot do that, then the the whole reason for creating the part in the first place in CAD has been lost. And so not only is it a matter of capability, again, it's the matter of efficiency and being able to do things in a very straightforward way that lets you get the thing done that you need to do. And I think a lot of people fail to recognize that it's not just about that feature is available or there's a button you can click or there, yes, there is some extravagant way that you can accomplish the same thing that's going to take you 10 times longer than just using the right tool for the job. We'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram and Discourse, Mumble or Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to the social channels and also on shows and creators, destinationlinux.network. And some more information on where to find us. I like to hang out on the DLN Discourse specifically, but I'm on Telegram and Mumble and all the other places as well. And you can also find my content on my YouTube channel. And if you'd like more of my nonsense, you can go to cubiclenate.com. There are links there to my regular blatherings, podcast, and my YouTube channel. And last but not least, thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. Thank you for all of your support so far and positive feedback. We really appreciate it. Any feedback you have is welcome. We'd love to hear from you. Get your feedback on what we are doing. Any ideas for new concepts? Anything that just happens to pop into your mind? We'd love to hear from you. You're welcome to use any of those social outlets for Destination Linux Network, like Nate mentioned a moment ago. See you.